we are uh, in the second installment of a sermon series. It's going to be pretty lengthy. Uh, we're looking at um, the Old Testament book of Exodus. Uh, if, you're, if you're here as a visitor, uh, you're jumping in at just the right time. Uh, we, we began in Exodus chapter 1 last week. Uh, we're still in chapter 1. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and take that out, turn that on, open that up. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible... Um, We'll have the words projected for you. We do have free Bibles that we love to give away. So if you'd like uh, to have a Bible from the version that I read and preach from, uh, those are for, uh, available for the taking there in the lobby. Uh, before we look at today's passage, uh, let me uh, give you a glimpse into the window of our life this week. Uh, Heather was out of town um, for work uh, for a few days. And so when Heather is out of town, I like to take advantage of things that normally don't occur in our home. Uh, this week, that looked like uh, diving into Star Wars. Uh, Heather has no interest in that, I'm sorry. I've had little to no interest. In fact, uh, moment of confession, I've never seen Star Wars until this week. I know, I know. I've been shamed by you all before. Um, so we, uh, we decided, uh, me and the boys and Isabel, uh, decided to watch uh, Star Wars for the first time. And uh, as many of you Star Wars fanatics know, uh, the order of Star Wars is very important. Um, and before this week, um, I was surveying, even some of you, as to if you were a first-time watcher of Star Wars, uh, what order would you watch them in? Uh, would you begin with... Episode 4, A New Hope, uh, originally released, uh, you know, and then they go back and do the prequels. Or would you begin at Episode 1? Uh, for those of you that have not watched Star Wars and have no idea what I'm talking about, you can check out for a few minutes. But just, just bear with me for a moment. So I began to poll what order to watch them in. Well, long story short, we decided to begin at Episode 1. We decided to begin out of the order in which they were released. I know we're not purists like some of you. Um, here, here's, my, here's my point, connection to the passage. Um, the opening verses of Exodus chapter 1 that we looked at last week, verses 1 through 7, uh, really function as the prequel uh, to the rest of Exodus. So, um, so what we looked at last week... Um, is episodes one to three of Star Wars, making the, the metaphor connection. Um, and uh, what we're looking at today uh, would be kind of the opening narrative of, of Exodus, really. This is, this is episode four, A New Hope. Um, and, and I loved it. One of my boys, Jaden, asked me um, after watching the first three and then turning on verse four, he says, Dad, why is the TV so blurry? Um, so, hence the life of a, a new age, uh, HD-driven uh, kid. Um, but today is, um, is the opening narrative, really, of Exodus. Um, uh, we believe that, uh, most, most believe, including myself, that Moses wrote this book. Um, probably, it would have been after the Exodus event. So, so he's writing this post-event to a people uh, who are preparing to go into the Promised Land. And so they're, they're looking back on what God has done for generations and generations to come. In fact, uh, the original generations, uh, maybe this is obvious to you, it wasn't to me, the original generations that experienced what we're about to read no longer exist. 
uh, when he's writing and they're hearing this. So this is the you know the forefathers. This is prior generations. Uh, in fact, most believe that the span of chapter one is almost four hundred years. So so we're we're covering a lot of activity in history uh, in this small narrative. Uh, but it's written uh, it's written for your encouragement today. So let's let's read uh, Exodus. Uh, I'm going to begin in chapter one, verse eight, and I'm going to go down uh, through the end of the chapter, verse twenty-two. So this is uh, this is God's word. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, "Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them." lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of God. Let's pray and ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, we, we pray now that um, all the meditations of our hearts and, and the words of this one man's mouth would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, you are our only rock. You are our only hope. You are our only redeemer. Help us to see that now as we look at your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I think I've shared with some of you uh, some of the random, uh, the litany of jobs I've had over the years. I know many of us hopefully have had a variety of jobs, particularly in our younger years of just random odd jobs. Um, one of the jobs I had uh, kind of uh, in, in my college years, which, were, which there were a lot of those, um, in the college years uh, was I worked um, at an Amish furniture store. Um, I, in fact, I was a, a master uh, detailing uh, machine of Amish furniture. If you know anything about Amish furniture, the Amish, they know how to make some furniture. Um, so this was, 
this is some high-end stuff uh, we were dealing with. And um, my, my job uh, was, was kind of back-of-the-house stuff. So, uh, again, detailing the stuff, so any nicks that were in the furniture, and also delivering, uh, delivering the furniture. Um, but, but I didn't just work for the back-of-the-house uh, obviously, we had some, some responsibilities up at the front of the house where there was a, a storefront and everything was on display in sales. And um, the unique thing about this particular job was I, was I really had two bosses. Um, I had, um, it was a husband and wife that owned this store. Um, the wife ran the front of the house and, and the husband ran the back of the house. And, uh, and they ran things in entirely different ways. Um, and... And, and, and I don't know, maybe in your experience, I'm, I'm sure you have different levels of management and uh, kind of different substructures within your own jobs where, where you may have kind of two functioning bosses, as it were. Um, but, it, but it is fundamentally tense to work for two opposing bosses who really function in different ways. Um, Chet, back of the house guy, was the most fun laid-back, easygoing kind of guy, right? You, you, you like working for that guy. Uh, his wife, whom I love, and uh, she ran things a little, little tighter up front, right? You've, kinda, you've got to present yourself in a different fashion when you're making sales. And so as the delivery boy, let's be honest, I was just the delivery boy, I felt the tension of working under these two extremities. Um... The Israelites really are, are living in this foreign land um, as the people of God. Right? He's, he is their king. He's their ruler, their boss, so to speak. Uh, but they are also falling under uh, the rule of, of the land. They have a, a new king, uh, as the, the passage tells us. Um, and one of the things that's important background for, for us to understand as we look at, at, at passages like this, and, and even when we survey things outside of the Bible, especially in our own lives, um, is that really one of the driving forces and the driving text of the entire storyline of the Bible um, is found at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Um, just to catch you up real quick, in Genesis chapter 3, Humanity has rebelled against God, and God begins, to, um, he really begins expanding on what the curse will be because of rebellion. And so he tells the woman, or, or he tells the serpent uh, his curse, and the, it reads this in verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That, that text. That, that portion of the curse fundamentally drives everything that has happened in history since. Um, it's the good versus evil uh, narrative that many of us are familiar with. It's the dark side, uh, if you're sticking with the Star Wars stuff. Um, the thread of history has been the seed of the serpent attempting to crush the seed of the woman. Uh, in today's passage, that is no different um, we see the promised seed, the promised family in a foreign land. And we see the seed of the serpent trying to crush that promise. Um, and the reality that, that I, really, I really want us to see out of this passage 
is that um, life in the grip of, of an evil king, life in the midst of darkness, uh, life in a foreign land, really can only be loosened by another king. And, and uh, he's the one that went into death for us. So, so I'll put it, I'll put, I think I put it up front here. Let me just put it in a memorable way like this. So life in the grip of an evil king can only be loosened when the true king who entered the grip of death for you. Okay, so, so the, the big idea of this passage is for us to see how life in a foreign land under the oppressing rule of a foreign king can only be liberated through the arrival of another king, namely Jesus. Um, so let's, look at the, let's just look at the two kings today. Uh, we're going to look at the new king, and then we're going to look at the true king. So let's look at uh, the new king uh, throughout the passage. Um, Moses uh, does not name this king. Uh, he's, it's very generic terms that he uses. He says that there's a new king. Uh, it says there's a pharaoh. Um, listen, historically speaking, he could have been named. Like Moses could have pinpointed who this pharaoh was. Now he's writing before he's born. So Moses is going to be born in chapter 2. But traditionally and through oral tradition, Moses would have known who this king was, but he remains nameless and anonymous. And here's the reason why. Uh, Hebrew literature and the, the, the scriptures that we have was not interested in telling the story of who the king of Pharaoh was. He's interested in telling us who the god of the book of Exodus is. And so the narrative largely is not to highlight evil and oppression and suffering. It's to highlight the God who would redeem his people outside of that. Um, and so we see that the new king does a couple of things. Uh, first, he begins oppressing God's people. Uh, the language is, is very strong. Verse 11. Um, Therefore, they, the Egyptians, set taskmasters over them to afflict them. Uh, to you and I, that sounds like um, hard times. Uh, it sounds like you know a difficult season of life, and, and it can be that, but the language here is vivid. In fact, it, it's the language, it's the same word that's used uh, for the word rape uh, in the Bible. Um, it, it can also mean to crush. Uh, and so Pharaoh was setting out to crush and oppress and overpower God's people. And the question we should ask is why? Um, and the answer to that is because a tired, crushed, overpowered slave is helpless. Uh, he was bringing an end to the individuality of people, and he was corporately trying to undo the power because of their numbers, uh, that Israel was beginning to have in Egypt. Um, and the Egyptians, uh, they were known for their stonework. Uh, they were, they were a building people. I mean, if you know little to nothing about Egypt, you know about their pyramids, right? Um, and so they had a reputation for this kind of work, and that is the, uh, the methodology that Pharaoh chooses to enslave God's people. It's through physical labor, namely brick-making. Um, now, you and I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a white-collar guy. We have some blue-collar folks around here that understand construction. But let me, let me kind of give you the skinny on brick-making so we begin to understand the labor that was involved. Um, 
largely it was done around water, and so it's water. Uh, uh, they had to. They would have carted the water probably out of the Nile River, brought the water to the workers. There would have been others collecting stubble and mud. They would have brought this ba- this mixture back to them, and they would have been forming by hand these bricks. Uh, they would have taken them and set them out for probably three days or so to dry. The professionals tell me, um, and it would have taken all in all probably largely about a week for a brick from beginning to end. Um, and so there's kind of this, this tedious nature of the work. Um, but let me put a, a little bit more perspective onto that. Uh, the demand for the amount of bricks is, is really, it's off the charts. Um, so one commentator took the privilege of estimating kind of all of the math behind at least one pyramid. So one pyramid would have approximately needed 24.5 million bricks. Okay, so... A ton of bricks. Um, they would have been able to make about 3,000 bricks per day an eight-hour work, work day. And they were probably working many more than eight hours, but let's just use our eight-hour kind of, kind of time frame there. So in order to, to pull that off, for those of you that are calculating in your head, uh, that's about 22 years just to get the products that they needed for one pyramid. Um, that's not even factoring in labor to build the pyramid. You, you get what I'm saying. It was, a, it was a daunting task set before them. Make bricks. Um, and, and what the narrative says is they were making them uh, as store cities for the king. Um, now, royal store cities, th- this would have been... This would have been a place, a flashy place, because kings like flashy things. So a big place where they would have stored all their agricultural stuff. So grain, wine, oils, those types of things. They would have put their military type of stuff in there. So these were large storehouses uh, put together for the kings. Uh, Basically, they're sheds. (laughs) They're flashy sheds for wealthy kings. And so the irony, we're going to come back to this kind of towards the end. The irony is that here in the beginning, God's people are being forced into labor, into building something for a king so that they could store up their goods uh, uh, for, their own, for their own glory, for their own kingdom. But, but verse 12, I mean, the, I mean the, the delicious irony of verse 12, let me read it again, is that the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. I mean, it's, the irony is just thick. That The Pharaoh would, would do his best to squelch God's people and they would multiply even more. Um, I, I kind of think, I think we need to be reminded regularly um, that the suffering of God's people is never outside the realm of God's purpose. Ever. Um, it, it, it is always redemptive in nature. Always. And so God's people certainly were asking themselves why, um, and they didn't see it all come to fruition. Again, these people didn't, they don't, they don't make it to the promised land. They don't see the end game. They're not reading this story like we're reading it. Um, but God is using that to advance His purpose in their lives, individually and broadly speaking. 
Um, but if the oppression wasn't enough, the second thing the new king does is he begins to execute them. Um, this, is, um, this is genocide. He is, um, he's attempting to uh, undo the, the male lineage of the Israelites. Now, uh, he tells these midwives who, ironically, are named. I mean, these are two women that are named. Moses didn't name the king, but he named these two midwives, um, highlighting their significance in the grand story. Um, and, he, and he tells them flat out, kill all the baby boys. Uh, they had direct access uh, to the children, obviously. Now, people largely think, I mean, there were more than two midwives, right? I mean, if the, if the Israelites are, you know, voraciously multiplying and their fertility rates are off the charts, I mean, they probably had many, many midwives, but these two were probably maybe what we would identify as like charge nurses, like they were kind of overseeing the, the midwives in general, but they had direct access to all of the children that were being born, and Pharaoh says, execute them. What a, I mean, what a chilling fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Right? The seed of the serpent attempting to extinguish the seed of the woman. I mean, if, it's, if it's never been clear, here it is. The seed of the serpent attempting to kill the seed of the woman. Literally. Um, and so what we begin to see unfold is this, this reign of terror, this culture of death, you know, this atmosphere of oppression and darkness falling over God's people. And listen, you know, I don't often overplay this good evil thing, but this is Satan trying to destroy the work of God. It is. This is spiritual warfare at play on earth. Um, and so whatever the, the regime that this is falling under, whether it's the Israelites in Egypt under Pharaoh, or whether it's you know, Hitler extinguishing Jewish, or whether it's you know, communist China, the one-child policy, or let's hit this close to home, whether it's American West and, and the abortion that is, that is becoming now the neutral and norm for our society... This is Satan trying to destroy the work of God. And his strategy through his pawn, Pharaoh, is to enslave and kill God's people. And here's the, here's the principle um, for us. The principle comes from the midwives. And the, the principle is fear God and not Pharaoh. I mean, that's what it's showing us. The midwives' response to the command and the edict of Pharaoh was, we're not going to do this. <laughs> Fear God and not Pharaoh. Um, we, as a people in America, have just come out of one of the most divisive and ugly presidential elections, at least in our lifetime, um, that has divided our country. Uh, we are now in the midst of a government shutdown <laughs> We, uh, like I mentioned earlier, we are now experiencing astronomical numbers of abortions daily in our country. Uh, we have wars and rumors of wars around every media bend. Uh, the moral compass in our world is 
just spinning outrageously right now. Um, that's, that's how they felt. And that's how you and I feel. And when we look at and we assess these things that are going on around us, our inclination is to fear, right? Is to question, is to place blame. But the most repeated command in the scriptures, in the entire Bible, is this. Do not fear. It's, the Bible tells us time and time again, do not fear your circumstances. Do not fear rulers or nations or politics or work rumors. Do not fear. So the question is, I mean, let's be real. How can we not fear? I mean, how can we not fear that the world that we live in is unraveling before our very eyes and it feels as though everything is spinning out of our control and where is God in the midst of all of this? Those are the questions the Israelites are asking. Those are the questions that we are asking. And so let's look at, secondly, the silver lining of the passage. Let's look at what the true king, who the true king is. Um, I, I just know, I, I know people... Um, because I spend time with a lot of people and I feel like I know these Israelites um, because I spend a lot of time reading about them. And I think the question that was continually on repeat in their playlist was, why us and why like this? Um, we're going to kind of, we're going to unpack our why questions, but I mean, suffering and evil always raises that question to our minds. Why? Why is this happening to me, and why like this? What have I done to deserve this? Um, and and the, probably the best answer that I might have for that, um, that I think, I think the Bible really upholds, is that um, the life without any suffering, in other words, the life of complete complacency and comfort, is the life that has no need for God. Um, and so suffering uniquely helps us look for God. Um, you know, we, I, I don't have all of the, I mean, like the question is, could, like, could God have done what he was going to do with Israel and the coming of Jesus in a different form or fashion? I mean, pr probably, I mean, theologically speaking, you know, we believe God can do all things and those. He, he probably could have worked out another way, but in the wisdom of God, he uniquely prescribed suffering to bring about the way that we would discover him and discover our need for him. Um, I love Charles Spurgeon commenting in one of his sermons on this passage would say this. He would say that the whip of persecution is helpful because it makes us learn that this is the house of bondage. And moves us to long after and seek for the land of liberty, the land of joy. Um, there are people in this room who experience suffering in all varieties of forms. Uh, certainly physical suffering is a very real um, reality for us. Um, pain, uh, bodies that are falling apart. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in my... 30s, and I feel like I'm decaying already. Um, 
That's not a comment on those of you that are older than 30. I'm just, <laughs> just a comment on myself. Uh, we, ex we, we do experience demanding work, whether it is physically demanding work or mentally demanding work or relationally demanding. Uh, we, we experience you know, financial doubt. Um, where's the next payment coming from? We, we, we do experience that kind of suffering. And, and scaled to this, it feels small, um, but it's not. It's just different. Um, it's not small. Um, there's mental suffering that many of us are feeling. Depression and sadness and loneliness. Um, bitterness from past. Uh, anger that's resonating. Uh, there, there's, there's certainly spiritual suffering that many of us are feeling. Wavering doubt of unbelief. Um, a sense of insignificance in this world. A lack of purpose. So, these are things that the Israelites were feeling, and these are things that you and I are feeling. So the question that I really want to want to answer in, in a bit of conclusion here this morning is, is where's the good news? <laughs> like, in a narrative like this, where is hope to be found? Do we have to wait till the end of Exodus to get there? Um... The answer is no. See, this picture of God's people building sheds for kings, um, that, that word, store cities, is actually a word that sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for tavern. So if you know the Exodus story, a little spoiler here, towards the end, they're not going to be building store cities for Pharaoh anymore. They're going to be building a dwelling place for their God, a tabernacle. A mobile church, as it were. A place for God to be with His people. And, um, and that um, tabernacle was even a precursor to another tabernacle that was coming. Um, see, the tabernacle of God is not in a building, but it was in one person. The Lord Jesus. See, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the presence of God in flesh. That God became a man to be with his people. And um, he, he became that not just to set some high example for you to follow, but he became that to defeat enslavement and death that you couldn't defeat on your own. And so Jesus comes as the very tabernacle of God, the store city of the King of Kings, and He embraces our impression of oppression for us. He comes in lowly circumstances, with no financial means or resources at His fingertips. He tells us He has nowhere to lay His head. He's despised and rejected by His very own people. He comes and He embraces oppression for us, but not even just to live a life of lowly servitude, but he comes and he faces the very execution that Satan was after for us. He comes and he embraces the death that should have come to you and I. He, ironically, was born under an edict of death like these Israelite boys were. He flees to Egypt of all places 
to escape death, but then he returns to ultimately die on a cross so that you and I wouldn't have to experience that. He endures execution for us, the very thing we fear most, death. He embraces, he absorbs wrath for us. Verse 22, Pharaoh expands the command to kill every boy, to kill all of the Israelite children by throwing them into the Nile. Jesus, as it were, is thrown into the Nile of wrath for us. And then he offers life to us. Death could not hold this tabernacle. Romans 8 says this. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, um, Union to this king happens. You belong to this one through belief in that promise alone. Um, the, the tone of a lot of Christianity that we hear today is, would conclude like this. What have you done for this king? <laughs> like, look at all that Jesus has done for you. What are you doing for him? And I don't think that this passage wants us to walk away with that, but rather with this. Look at everything this king has done for you. Wearied, enslaved, decaying people of God. Look at everything he's done and then hear his words that say, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This passage offers rest for the weary and burdened and bruised people of God. Oh, that he would give that to us even, even today as we ask for it. Let's pray and ask him for that. Father, I know I'm guilty of reading passages and stories in the Old Testament and, um, and not resonating with them, thinking that that is um, simplistic and um, dated type of stuff. But Lord, we are those people. Lord, we are people who are crushed, enslaved, and empowered to the very thing that holds us, namely our sin and the death that should come from that. But Lord, we praise you that you sent Jesus to extinguish that, to put an end to it. Lord, I, I pray that if, if there's anyone here today that feels hopeless, that feels enslaved to a particular sin that has its claws inside of them and feels like they cannot escape the grip of it, I pray that you would bring liberation through your Son. Lord, I pray that for all of us, that we would look to that true King, and that we would find the rest that all of us so desperately want. That we would relinquish control over our lives, over our financial security, over our uncertain futures, over our romantic relationships, over our marriages, over our children. And that we would embrace the true King and perhaps even the suffering 
that is involved with following him. Lord, help us do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name.